0: Hello and welcome to the Cory Miller Podcast. My name is Padre Tuma. In the first year of Brexit and a century after the partition of Ireland, I'll be in conversation with insightful guests, exploring contemporary Britishness and Irishness through the lenses of history, politics, art, and theology. In this week's episode, I'll be talking with Professor Anthony Reddy, an author, theologian, and academic, who has written extensively on national identity, race, and Brexit
1: we were one of only two black families in the whole church. And because it was also, I think, a church that was also steeped in a certain type of colonialism, the elephant in the room really was race. So from the Brexit party, literally Godman said, let's just get Brexit done. We've beat the Germans twice before. I mean, literally, he said that, and people clapped. And I thought, really? I mean, that's what passes now like for political science.
0: My name is Padre Tuma, and you're listening to the Coramila podcast. With me today is theologian and director of the Oxford Centre for Religion and Culture, Dr Anthony Reddy. Anthony, thanks very much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you this morning.
0: Anthony, where are you talking to us from today?
1: I'm speaking to you from my flat in Birmingham, Ah. in South Birmingham, um, in Moseley. Oh,
0: lovely. We haven't met in person, um, Anthony, but a few years ago, I was teaching a course in a college in England and your book, Theologizing Brexit, was about to come out and no joke, they had cardboard cutouts of you on every floor in this college I was teaching at and I was teaching on the third floor. So I got to the stage where I'd say hello to the cutout of you every time I'd come through a different floor. So it's nice to be able to talk to you and um, have you talk back. That's a great joy. I'd gotten used to just talking to myself. <laughs> um We'll talk about your book, Theologizing Brexit, in a while. But first, I was curious to start off with a little bit of your background. Um, you were born and brought up in Bradford in West Yorkshire of Jamaican parents who were part of the Windrush generation. Is that right? Did I get my research right?
1: It was, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah. And um, your parents were political, supporting Labour and the trade union movement. And is it right that you were You're named Anthony after the Labour politician Tony Benn?
1: I am indeed, yes. That's one of my proudest um, facts of my upbringing. I mean, actually, I did not know that until about five, six years ago. I mean, my father is 87 now. Um, uh, Here, my mother, they both retired to Jamaica back in 1991. And uh, and, that sort of tends to be the case, I think, the older one's parents get, particularly my father, who was very taciturn when he was young, is positively sort of loquacious now and just just kind of spill the beans like to any question you ask him. And so I said, um, and so one day like we're on the veranda where he lives in Jamaica and we were talking and I just mentioned in passing that, I know that my middle name, George, comes from my great great grandfather. He was the first former enslaved African person in Jamaica to learn to read and to buy land. Wow. And when he bought land, um, he then um, sort of built a church on it, so built a Baptist church on it, um, that still stands to this day. It's called Bellcastle Baptist Church. And when I was growing up, I knew a lot about my great-great-grandfather called George Marriott and how brilliant he was and, and, and how much he was someone who fought against colonialism and fought for um i guess like the rights of black people at a time when that was not the norm and you know very little about why i was called anthony and then just suddenly out of the blue like my dad says oh well um i named after my hero tony ben <laughs> and i thought oh wow oh, well okay i'll take that that's brilliant <laughs>
0: um how, how would you say that the you know the place of Bradford um, in West Yorkshire and the politics of your parents informed you as a youth, were you aware of kind of location and the politics of that? like was that like bread and butter in your household?
1: It was, yeah. Um, in a very implicit way. So what I think was interesting was that my parents were not overtly political, although clearly my dad was a trade unionist. He was very much. Um, he was a trade union sort of representative, the sort of general municipal workers union. So I was very clear that we were kind of on the left, um, and Bradford certainly the, uh, the the place I grew up in was very. It, uh, it was a birth. It was the birthplace of the Independent Labour Party, hmm. and so it was a place where I think non-conformist uh, sort of dissenting christianity so mainly kind of methodist baptist independent methodist baptist congregationalists and labor party politics very much went together uh-huh. and those two things like was um were seen really almost as a synergy so i still remember going to birmingham university and meeting anglicans who were tories and not understanding how they could even call themselves Christians, because in the world I came from, that was an oxymoron. You know, yeah. I mean, like to be a, a Tory and a Christian was just simply to, sort of trying to uh, um, put sort of yin and yang together, and that just didn't work. And so um, I, I think looking back now, I can see it was I was formed in a very particular social and cultural milieu.
0: Yeah. Um, I'd be interested later on to talk a little bit about that and what it was that you needed to learn about in terms of coming in contact with other folks from some of the more established traditions. You mentioned that, you know, your folks retired back to Jamaica and you visited your Jamaica yourself at the age of 17. What was that experience of going to the homeland that you hadn't, that hadn't been your home, but had nonetheless been your identity? What was that like for you? And what's that been like as your family have moved back to Jamaica, having um, moved to England?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that first trip was really quite traumatic. Um, and for a long time, I, I struggled to process it because at one level, I've never really felt English. That I think for me, and again, I think this is, part, um, is very much part of the book Theologizing Brexit, but English to me is still synonymous with whiteness.
0: Okay.
1: And clearly, I'm not white. And therefore, I've never felt English in any quintessential way. So when I was growing up with my parents talking about back home, I assumed that that home was also my home as well, in a very sort of familial sense through my parents. Anyway, so I got to Jamaica and, uh, and I'm 17 and at that point, I realised just how English I am mm. in terms of my mannerisms and so there's something quite jarring about being in the village where my mum was from, so I'll stay with my grandma and everybody knew I was English mm. even though I'm in a village full of black people and there's no white people around at all and people said, "Englishman, Englishman," Englishmen, and I'm feeling quite annoyed at being called English even though I am English and... And I think because it was kind of rural Jamaica and I'm a metropolitan city boy, this was just a clash of values that I just struggled. So those six weeks went very slowly. And the truth is at the time, I really couldn't wait to get back to England, which was confusing because when I get back to England, I'm now facing all the sense of racism, and been an outsider that I'd felt for years that had made me want to feel that Jamaica was home. And so for a while, there was this sense of not quite sure where you belong. Now, of course, in terms of post-colonial stuff, I understand it in terms of liminality, but at the time, I didn't know such language and concepts. I think subsequently for my parents going back, I think they faced all the same things. Mm. And I think within the first two years, they could have easily have come back to Britain and given up. And that has certainly been the case, I think, for many of that generation, uh, the Windrush generation. A lot have stayed here in Britain because they've been away for so long that Britain has become home. And that sense of exile for the Windrush generation, I think for a lot of them, they face those same tensions. that What they remember uh, is an upbringing pre-independent in countries that that facet of life no longer exists. And so they feel stuck between being British in a, um, in a sense, but not recognized or respected as being British, you know. I mean yeah. like the present Windrush scandal yeah. shows us that manifestly. On the one hand, and yet going back home and not feeling that they belong. I think for my parents, I think they've persevered long enough for for them to be able to get over that. So now my father is ensconced in the village. I mean, he couldn't imagine going anywhere else, and that is a place where he will die. But I think it was very much an initial struggle for the first, probably, let's say, two years or so. Mm.
0: Yeah, going home can be a really complicated thing, because because of having left, all the changes that happened seem to be quite abrupt when you go back, having been away for 25 or 30 years. The Christian upbringing you describe, where you know politics and the workers' movement and um, the nonconformist traditions of religion all seem to really uh, have conversations with each other, you did say that even within that context, race was the elephant in the room. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in the church I went to, it was a a Wesleyan church, um, in Methodist tradition, and was very much a place of social improvement um a form of um social mobility really so so I think most people who who were the most important people in the church two generations previously they would be very working class but but through education through hard work through thrift um inspired by a particular brand of, sort of Wesleyan Christianity they had kind of improved. Um, so it was a church with a very acute class consciousness about it
0: yeah
1: however we were one of only two black families in the whole church and and because it was also i think a church that was also steeped in a certain type of colonialism that the elephant in the room really was race so basically it was a church that i think was more comfortable i think wrestling with class politics but actually when it came to thinking about its relationship to empire and to missionary work out there, they never quite understood what to do with this ready family, which was like this family. Probably courtesy of my mother were very devout churchgoers. We were there every week. So basically if, if we weren't at church, we either ill hmm. or or my parents had sort of gone back to the Caribbean like, to bury their parents or relatives. So essentially, we were at church every single Sunday, and the church, as I said, it never quite understood what to do with this. So, at one level, I was—it was—it was a great place for formation. I owe them a great deal in terms of the values I have, I guess, maintained. You know, so even into my mid-fifties. On the other hand, um, it was a place that was racist. It was—it was a very kind of um, genteel middle-class kind of racism, so meaning that no one ever said anything outright in any in in particular way to you that was really egregious. It was just a set of assumptions around you being not as good as other people, and certainly in terms of how we interpreted the gospel, it was very Eurocentric, so I tell this story about um, encountering a white Jesus when I was about 13 years old, and, and this Jesus on the far wall of the parlor, this is where the seniors in the Sunday school met. And I said in other places that like, this Jesus looked more like Beyond Bog than Beyond Bog looked like <laughs> Beyond Borg. Um, just exceed, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, never have eyes been so blue and hair so blonde. <laughs> and, and clearly, and clearly that like there was a Remington beard trimmer in first century Judea, because obviously Jesus had this, perfectly Crawford beard that was just, you know, I mean, this, you know, I and mean this is a beautiful man, you know, that, that like you could stare into his eyes and fall in love with him kind of thing. And I would, I remember just staring at this picture and thinking to myself, so if this is a son of God, God incarnate, this is the visible representation of what we think God is, then who the hell am I? Yeah. And, 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 And I remember asking the teacher that, and she just said, "Um, I don't know. It doesn't matter, Anthony. You know, I mean, uh, God loves you. And I thought, well, I don't doubt that God loves me. But but if I don't look like God, but everyone else in, in this church does, particularly people who have authority and power in it, can I really believe that God loves me as much as God loves everyone else in this church? Yeah. I mean, given
0: all that, Anthony, it's kind of surprising that you've gone on to devote your life's work to theology, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that, but
1: what what Uh, led you
0: to that, if you can kind of pinpoint anything?
1: Yeah. So Yeah. I mean, a couple of things, really. So I did church history rather than theology because I didn't have the confidence. I I didn't have the confidence to tell my elders in the church that I was going to do this subject that they'd spent so much time frowning upon. So I did history instead, but then chose all the religious aspects of history, which is mainly church history at Birmingham. And two things happened, really. Two things happened. Firstly, I was taught, not that I understood it at the time, but I was taught by some great left-wing academics. So particularly... E.P. Thompson and his wife, Dorothy Thompson, who were both very, very strong Marxist historians. I mean, they were both quite old at the time, and they were kind of like emeritus and still teaching around Birmingham, I think, as much like to keep their hands in, really. And so I fell under their spells. Wow. I remember doing a course looking at, at the social and political significance of Christianity in terms of the Chartist movements, in terms of the toll puddle of martyrs, which is important as a Methodist, in terms of their role in, in helping that to found the early emergence of the Labour Party. I still remember even writing an essay as to whether the construction of the Labour Party owed more to Marx or Methodism. <laughs> it's, it's definitely Marx, although Methodism <laughs> would like to claim credit. It is Marx, it's Marx, not Methodism. It's anyway, so that's one of the essays I did. Wow um and and then at the same time i felt under the spell of the scm the student christian movement yeah and what that did to me was it gave me this strong sense of connection because i think when i was growing up because the church was relatively conservative although there were some people in the church who were clearly Interest in social justice and interest in social issues. For the most part, the church tended to be rather neutral about that. It tended to want to say, well, okay, we can see the social implications of the faith, but we don't want to stress it too much because it looks too political if we talk about that. So therefore, let's be much more pietistic and largely try to stay aloof of social issues, even though in Bradford, like, you can't dodge them. I think going to university, those two things connected. Suddenly, I was amongst people for whom social justice and the gospel were one and the same thing you couldn't separate them actually if you weren't doing social justice then like you weren't doing the gospel properly that lots of gang activity i was a i was a community worker down the late eighties, early 90s and that's where i discovered black theology so then black theology there came alongside the social gospel um embassies that i had come across earlier and yeah, and that's where I think like, the desire then like, to want to become a theologian then really emerged in the early to mid-90s. So, Anthony, I want
0: to go on to talk about the book um, Theologizing Brexit, which was published in 2019 in response to the Brexit referendum. Could you tell us why you chose to use Brexit as a way of writing this kind of theology, liberationist and post-colonial and black?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what really inspired me really was a conversation I remember having with a colleague when I was working for the Methodist Church, probably about 2015, so in the year before the referendum when obviously, uh, we knew that that was coming up and there was all the discussion around it. And I remember this person was um, a white woman, and I talk about it in the book, I think, in the introduction.
0: yeah.
1: And she was going to vote leave. And she was very clear and she spoke, and she spoke passionately about, um, uh, about sovereignty and about the EU encroaching and, and various other things. And remember that what was also implicit in the conversation, although we were having what has turned out to be one of many vociferous conversations that turned into arguments um, um, around this, was, was all the stuff that wasn't being said. So, although notionally we were both talking about the EU and talking about sovereignty and uh, and talking about being part of Europe or being separate from Europe, there was also this subterranean conversation around what it meant to be English, in particular, but British in in more general terms. And for her, she was very much looking back. So her thing was that Britain was not the same place as as it was. In, in the years when she was growing up. She was slightly older than I am. So I'm born 64. I think she was born 59. Um, and she was brought up, um, I think, in the East End of London and said, well, you know, in those days, and she never used white once. And yet it was very clear that what she was talking about was how the community that she'd grown up in that was very much a white Working class Eastern culture being replaced by these other ethnic groups, and now when she went back, she didn't recognise mm. her old neighbourhood. But yet, never once mentioned race, never once talked spoke about white, even though clearly those were the things that were driving a lot of her concern. That really had very little to do with the EU. Yeah. So actually, actually, so when I pressed and said, "So give me one specific example of how the EU is stopping us." from doing the things that we want to do, really. And she couldn't really say anything specific. And so for me, it seemed to me that there was something about Brexit that was allowing a certain type of conversation to happen without having to name it. And therefore, without having to name it, allowed a certain kind of ease for the likes of Farage and various other people to engage in a kind of discourse that would have been wholly impossible to do in in the years following enoch powell because that we so what happened to enoch powell you know yeah uh enoch powell did his rivers of blood speech and that made him a pariah to the point whereby his political career never recovered mm-hmm. therefore i was wondering how then you go from that to conversations that are not dissimilar but are now so mainstream that actually no one's a pariah if anything people are now held up as heroes so, how did you go from the pariah yeah. of the 60s to someone who's now a hero? And it seemed to me that Brexit was a synonym for lots of things that were not being stated. So, I wanted to try and state them.
0: Yeah. I've heard you say, uh, like when you describe these anecdotes in your books and in your talks and papers, um, while you're critical of some of the thinking around the Brexit debate, you're very careful not to stereotype people who voted in different ways and you're you actually you go out of your way to highlight that there are valid arguments for folks who voted in different ways why is it so important for you a to be strong about your opinion but b not to turn that into a castigation of folks who voted differently that seems to be an ethic in the way you write about brexit
1: yeah i mean i think there's two things really i'm trying to achieve in that i think firstly um if I think about the world I came from, which was specifically in Bradford, it's east boarding, so it's BD4, so it's one of the largest wards in Bradford and one of the poorest ones. I think if I went back to that, and, and within that I would include my youngest brother, so Chris, who's a young... Uh, um, I've, I've got three brothers, so I'm the eldest, and two brothers will follow me, and then my sister, uh, Sandra, she's the youngest. Um, um, I think Chris voted to leave. Virtually everyone in the Hall of East Bowling actually would to leave. I think it would be easier to find the people who vote to remain. That might be one or two individuals, but virtually everyone virtually. vote to leave. Yeah. And I understand the reasons why they do it. I think they're misguided. I think they were conned. I think that this was a classic form of of misdirection, so basically like the likes of Boris Johnson and Farage, private, privately educated, privileged white English men who are propagating a form of, of English nationalism that then takes in people who are the left behind, people who are the marginalised, people who... that However we think about the gains of Britain in terms of economic growth over, let's say, the, uh, the last 15, 20 years or 30 years, they have not benefited from that at all. And that are alienated from Westminster politics. I know these people well because I grew up amongst them. Mm-hmm. It's really it's really, but for the grace of God that I got my A-levels and went to university and escaped that. But there are many people who have, who have not done that. And because that is still part of my identity, I still identify with that. So even though, realistically, I'm not a working-class Bradfordian anymore, My heart is still located in those places in terms of my identification and my solidarity with them. So therefore, I want to find a way of writing that would not castigate them as being idiots or being bigots or being backward or being stupid or being ignorant. They're none of those things. Mm -hmm. They are truly the ones who have been um, oppressed. And the tragedy is that... That I think that they've been used to the point whereby what should have been a natural set of coalition politics between people who are who share a particular experience of marginalisation, rather than that there was a classic divide and rule that then got particularly poorer white working class communities like to identify with rich white people who have never cared about them, by the way, and 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 to see immigrants as being their enemy rather than actually this is your class allegiance to people who feel exactly how you feel and feel exactly alienated in the same way you do so that's the first thing i think secondly i think for me as as a, as a liberation theologian i've always been clear that god's preferential option for the marginalized and the oppressed and those who are left behind is because god is righteous not because those individuals are necessarily any better in terms of their moral standing than other people and so what i've always tried to do is try not to be too tribalistic in terms of assuming that there's righteousness imbued in any particular group of people. It's it simply to say it simply said that a God of justice and righteousness and who propagates the values of an upside down kingdom will side with those who are on the margins rather than those who are powerful. And so, my job, I think, is to try to be an advocate for justice without falling into the worst types of tribal politics that then end up pointing the finger at individuals and castigating them as if somehow there's truth only on on one side in one particular perspective.
0: Corimila is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, Corimila supports groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. These remotely recorded podcasts come from our kitchen table to yours because we can't be together in the same room talking about these important topics in this important year. So if you want to take this conversation further, we've got some discussion and reflection questions for you and a full transcription too. You can find those on our website, carimila.org forward slash podcast or linked in our show notes. You're listening to the CoriMula podcast, and I'm Padre Gotuma, former leader at CoriMula. With me today is Anthony Reddy, specialist in black liberation theology and author of Theologizing Brexit, a liberationist and post-colonial critique. In your book, um, you've described missional Christianity, um, by which I think you mean, you know, a Christianity that has a, a missionary endeavor to make converts. You've described missional Christianity as the spiritual and theological underpinning for Brexit. Could you unpack that a bit?
1: Indeed, yeah. So so for me, I clearly see Brexit as, um, is linked to a form of nostalgia. So it's linked to a type of manifest destiny. So the days when the British, particularly the English, felt themselves to be superior and to have a special place in God's economy. This comes out of empire. And empire is imbued and is propagated by, is probably getting by mission, Christianity. So in the book, I cite the words of David Livingstone, who I think in 1857, um, in a talk in Oxford, which is ironic because obviously that's where I work now in Oxford, um, said that the base of the British Empire was the three Cs, commerce, civilization, and Christianity. So commerce, empires are always about making money. They're always about taking money from the colonies, from the places that have been colonised, taking it back to metropolitan centre and enriching themselves. Um, commerce. civilization, the white man's burden, it's about it's about sort of trying to recreate people into your own image and the imposition of language and culture and various values that are quintessentially white and British, but again, particularly English values, imposed upon other people. And and Christianity then becomes a sense like the theological and philosophical underscoring of all of this. And therefore, I say that although it's not, as I said, it's not manifest in, in the uppermost of people's consciousness, there's a way in which a certain view of christianity that underpins empire and underpins white exceptionalism actually becomes the the theological narrative albeit a subterranean one that informs brexit so for example in in the book i cite the research of greg smith and linda woodhead who show for example that anglicans i think about that so the church of england which is the church of english nationalism anglican more than any other group voted to leave and particularly Anglicans in the white suburbs um, and rural areas, so the places that were very much defined by whiteness, in which there is very little uh, I guess, um cultural and ethnic plurality, were even more likely then like to vote leave. I think um actually I think as high as 70% hmm. of and so within that, I make a, um, an interesting critique. If I was writing the book again, which is the case for everyone, like you do it differently. Mm-hmm. So if I was doing it again, I, in the book, I just make a quick aside between the vicar of Dibbley <laughs> and Rev. <laughs> and say so that Rev is the manifestation of the Church of England that votes to remain and the Vicar of Dibley is the one that votes to leave and which one is the more popular and the more iconic image of the Church of England It's the Vicar of Dibley in which a person of colour never turns up in any of the series that has been has been broadcast and that's because that fits into a certain, I guess, uh, a certain sort of rural nostalgia of a particular picture of Englishness in which people like myself are, are wholly absent.
0: Huh. So there's once again the question, you know, if that's what England is, who the hell am I in the same way that you're talking about, you know, if that's what God is, yeah. who the hell am I?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you know. And and this particular what I would say is a cultural construct of England, oh, of of English Christianity. So, it's not predicated upon people necessarily going to church or or believing in a God who is incarnated into the body of a Palestinian Jew, I mean, that's certainly not what they have in mind. It is, it is it's very much an artefact of a certain type of a pastoral view of Englishness that has been, I think, resonant in the country, I think, ever since the original Elizabethan era, which is where it really kind of began, actually got um, under, um, under Elizabeth I in terms of English nationalism. Um, and yeah, and that has never included—it's um, never included black and minority ethnic people as part of that construct.
0: What part do you think that World War Two plays in the imagination of nationhood, um, and in the public imagination of nationhood in England, or maybe broader than that in Britain?
1: Oh, huge. Absolutely huge, and again, if 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 I write in the book again, there's probably more I could I could sort of theorise around that. I mean, I think the significance of World War II is, it's it's a last hurrah for a certain type of English uh, slash British uh, set of, sort of manifest destiny and is the hubris around empire. So you know, so obviously, so we win the war. And when I give popular talks, I usually have the quicker side that says, "Well, actually, it's really the Soviet Union actually that wins the war, because you know, I'm you know, I'm sorry, thirty million Russians die. So the truth is, like, they do all the heavy lifting, followed by the Americans and the Brits. You know, um, not to dis, not to downplay the sacrifice of Britain, but in in numerical terms, it compares nothing to the privations that Russians went through, for example. But anyway, we win the war.
0: And what does that do for a kind of a national consciousness? Um, you know, I, I have heard kind of from from the Irish side when I hear public conversations about Britain and and the European Union and the UK and the U- European Union. I do hear people saying, you know, well, we won the war, so therefore we'll survive this, yeah. or we'll beat the Germans Ooh. against this. What are what are those? What's happening in that? You know, because I I want to believe that something important is being communicated, but I don't know what the layers of importance are in that.
1: Yeah, so what it is, I think, is that because there's always been this sense of manifest destiny, I think, within the British, and that is very much linked to empire. So one of the things I did uh, it, in terms of looking at the whole um, theology and the, literature, uh, and the literature that comes out of mission Christianity in terms of this going out and propagating the gospel in various parts of the world is that what it does is it gives the British this huge sense of self-importance. Basically, what often people say is, well, okay, like people have had empires before, but no one's ever had an empire as big as ours. At its peak, 24% of the world, so a quarter of the world is controlled by, and, and run by, and owned by a small island that's only 44,000 square miles in circumference. Therefore, what that does is it gives this huge sense of self-importance that says um, that essentially to the British, to the rest of the world, um, and particularly in this context, to the continent of Europe, we are different from and better than you. We're different from and better than you. Therefore, what World War Two communicates that is that that then reinscribes that sense of superiority. So against all the odds, against the might of Germany that has conquered most of Europe, that the plucky Brits still prevail. It's why Churchill still remains such a huge icon. So even though he has this very problematic backstory in terms of someone who supports empire, someone who flirts with eugenics, this is someone who's on the wrong side of many arguments and values in terms of, in terms of kind of um of world history however he is the leader who leads britain to their finest hour and probably to like that last hurrah of being a great world imperial power so that thing then becomes imbued into the british psyche that then gets invoked so of course i sat Jonah hustings for the last european elections and last in both senses you know last yeah. as in it was it was the last time we did it and probably like the last time we will do it because obviously when we're out of Europe, like, we won't have these elections anymore. And so from the Brexit party, literally Godman said, let's just get Brexit done. We've beat the Germans twice before. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, literally he said that and people clapped and I thought, really? I mean, that's what passes now like for, for sort of political science here. Yeah. Because, and and the fact that so many people clapped is because they tapped into this set of, I think, unreconstructed ideas that are buried deep into many people's psyche that we're just not the same as. And part of why I think I have to to self-critique myself within that is that in the context of growing up in in Yorkshire, I never once said I was European. I never once identified with anything that was beyond Europe and even something as simple as, because again, actually one of the things that came out of the research from Greg Smith and Linda Woodhead was people who only spoke one language, English, were more likely to vote leave than people who spoke more than one language. Therefore, for someone like myself, who I remember being taught French first time I was at nine. And I did it from nine through to 16. And that today is still my worst ever exam. I think I got an unclassified. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations. French because, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of it. The truth is I just couldn't be bothered. It's like, it's like, so why do I need to learn French when everybody should speak, obviously, God's own language, which is clearly English. And clearly that sense of manifest destiny says that, you know, like the world revolves around us. And we, therefore, should have a special place in the world and you can have a special place if you're stuck within a common community with common set of rules where we, i.e. the British are not in charge, you know. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Europe would look very differently if the Germans and the French only had the good sense of terror and say, okay, I'll tell you what, like, we'll let you come back, but like, you can be in charge. If they are if they're let the Brits be in charge, I'm sure the Brits would think very differently about Europe. Yeah.
0: What was your experience of learning about Ireland through the lens of theology or of history, and then thinking about that in the context of Brexit?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that really shaped my um, formation growing up was a neighbour of ours. She was called, uh, what's it called now? She was called, oh, good Lord. Her name just escaped me. Well, anyway, uh, anyway so we had an Irish neighbour. Molly O'Sullivan. Uh uh, yeah, that's the one. No, 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 no actually not. <laughs> and she came from County Mayo. And she had uh, left Ireland in the 19, well, just before, well, 30s. I mean, so she'd been an old woman actually when I was growing up in the 70s, so 1780. So really, I mean, actually, probably born about 1910, 1920, came to Britain um, from a very unhappy rural Irish background and had married an Englishman and had uh, sort of lived in Bradford ever since so what was interesting was that when we were growing up she was the closest friend to our family particularly my mum and she hated the English I mean she was just viscerally anti-English and very pro-Irish and had a strong sense of Irish history in terms of being oppressed by England even though like she'd never gone back to Ireland I think she'd Maybe gone back only twice, I think, once for her father's funeral and once for her sister's wedding. And and again, it was that classic exilic experience. She had a particular view of Ireland that like, she didn't want to experience it in any contemporary sense, but she was very clear she wasn't English and she didn't like the English. And so she would come round to our house or sometimes we'd go to her house. And particularly she and my mum were very close friends and they would kind of talk in those... Talking very sort of conspiratorial terms around white Englishmen and, and why the English like, were such hypocrites. And what I took from her was this common sense of colonization. So she would also say, Well, you know, Mrs. Reddy, I know what it's like, like to have my land colonized. And, and so again, I think long before I knew what post colonial was. There was a sense in which my dad's closest friends who worked in a factory were always people who came from other places. So he had a close friend who was Polish. He had two very, very strong Welsh friends. He had a number of Scottish friends, not many white English men as friends. I mean, he had a few, but not many. And so there was a natural, I think, a natural kind of sense of all of us being outsiders. All of us being underdogs. Um And so long before I began to study Ireland, and then one of the significant things that we did was um, 17th century um, studies, particularly under the Stuarts, and then reading about the activities of Oliver Cromwell, for example, in Ireland. And reading that, and juxtaposing that with the history of slavery and and colonization of the Caribbean, I saw natural links. And so one of the things I remember actually when I was growing up as a in my teenage years was that when it came to the five nations as it was then, I would support everyone except England. So I was always on the side of the Welsh, the Scottish, and the Irish, and the French against an invariably all white English team because I just never identified with the English team at all.
0: Anthony Reddy, you're an educator as well as a historian and theologian. Um, And earlier this year, you published an article where you talk about moving from racism awareness training to deconstructing whiteness. Could you tell us about the importance of this distinction for you?
1: Indeed, yeah. So in the first iteration in terms of racism awareness, what that tended to do was to try and look at race as an abstract concept and to try and deconstruct what we mean by race, and to get into the semantics of what is racism and what is isn't racism, dumping racism and prejudice or discrimination, for example. And that was helpful at one level, but I think what it, it missed really was like the larger way in which this has factored into not just history, but into the very way in which we construct ideas of being and of truth and of belonging. And so what I wanted to do is, as I as I looked at the article, really was I think partly like to to critique my own um, um, teaching and pedagogy of the years because at a time when I was very much involved in uh, investment awareness, I was very much part of it. I believed in it, and so. That was a major part of my teaching in, in terms of working with different theological institutions. So, one of the things I point to in my book is "God Colorblind." So, it was first published in 2009, and it was republished this year, um, actually, in the work of George Floyd's murder and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter. So, within that book, I think it's the third chapter. I've got a um, third chapter is called "Deconstructing Whiteness," and, and within that, really is an exercise that, just, uh, that is just an opportunity, for it's a participative, participative exercise that gets people the opportunity to look at the very different layers that make us up as an individual. All of us are the sum of lots of different experiences and lots of different ways in which we name ourselves. And the point of that exercise, I think, is to do two things. First is it's to sensitise white people to the very fact that, actually one of the privileges of being white is they're not having to think about it. So when people say, well, of course, you know, I mean, I don't know what you mean. I never thought about being white. Yeah, actually, I understand that. That's one of the gifts of being white.
0: That is a very white thing to say, is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> it is, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So the fact that you'd have to think about it is one of the gifts, but also it's this thing, is that of all the issues that might hold you back, of all the issues that might be an ism within the context of being life in Britain, Being white isn't one of them. Being white isn't one of them. There's no context in which you being white becomes a material disadvantage in terms of your existence in Britain or indeed your existence in the world. Therefore, part of it is about self-awareness. It's about consciousness raising. It's, it's, it's It's about acknowledging what are the hoops that you don't have to jump through what are the ways in which barriers are removed simply just because you have the good fortune to be born into a particular epidermis that means that you're not racializing the way other people have to wrestle with these things every single day of their life whether they choose so or not but then secondly and i think this is the the more constructive and, and progressive element of it is in what way then can you use that to be an advocate for other people so what i'm not asking people to do is to apologize for being white i'm not asking people to apologize for being white and i'm not even saying that there is something that in and of itself is problematic about being uh, about people who self-identify or are part of a particular construction of being white what i'm saying is that if that then imbues you with certain advantages then how then do you become an advocate what sometimes I think in more recent terms, um, people talk about being white allies. I don't particularly like the term ally. I think I prefer advocate. So what ways then do you become someone who has the ability to acknowledge the advantages that comes and then you then become a supporter of other people? So one of the people I often point to in this, and I name it because he was such an influential person in my life. That was my history teacher at school, a guy called Richard Wilkinson. And he was white, working class, and gay. Not that we he would have been out, out at the time, but yeah. certainly like the older we got, because like he taught me from when I was 13, so first year of secondary school, right through to like my A levels. So back to that we got to A levels and we were kind of eighteen and stuff. He was a, a bit more indiscreet or a bit more um, open about his own background. He was very white, Yorkshire, Bradford born. So in many respects, self identified with all the things I've just spoken of. But what was brilliant about him was he was an advocate for creating space for everyone in his class to believe that they could transcend the social location to which we were born. And he was the one who said to me, you're clever, you're one of the best people I've ever taught to history. You should go to university. And he was a brilliant advocate for me, not because you understood what it meant to be black, but because he understood from his own lived experience of being working class, also, of the, I think, being gay. All those things, I think, gave him an insight into what it meant to be othered, to be pushed slightly to one side or to be seen in negative terms. And therefore, when he recognized that in other people, his role as a teacher then was to be an advocate to enable them to thrive.
0: What I hear you pointing to is that, you know, as you talk about deconstructing whiteness, you're not talking about being shamed of an identity or a background or of an economic status that you're born into, but really looking at an ethic and a practice of justice in terms of critiquing power and making sure that power is shared. Is that the kind of solution you see um, for places within which there's systemic racism? That um, those who hold the power would do the work themselves rather than thinking, you know, Let's, let's learn about black people and that will somehow mean that we'll be, you know, more diverse yeah. and more racially sensitive. Indeed,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things I've become more increase, more increasingly critical of are the type of well-meaning sort of benign liberals I would have met maybe uh, sort of 15, 20 years ago who were always quick to want to unpack my experience. You know, I said, tell us about your story, Anthony. I want to really get into doing black theology. And my thing is, okay, read Black Theology in order to learn, but what you need to do is to deconstruct your own privilege in order that you then become an advocate and you become someone who is prepared to give away power, to share power, to empower others in order that we begin to impact upon these social differentials that are not God-given, they're man-made, they're human constructs, and just as they're constructs, we can deconstruct them and reconstruct hmm, them yeah. if there was enough will and agency and and solidarity to do that.
0: What do you see in terms of an emergence of a thriving, filled with pride and glorious and flourishing sense of being English? Um, do you think that's possible? Um, do you think that that's happening? Just who who do you think is leading that conversation in a way that it's a, a vision for inclusivity? I'm sure it's happening. Of course it is. There's so much about Eng- there's so much about England
1: that I admire. So one of the stories I I sometimes tell is of a white couple on our street, John and Marian Venner, both long gone now. And what they did back in the day was in the days when black and Asian people could not get mortgages particularly Caribbean people could not get mortgages but what they would do is that like they would take the papers off some of the families go to banks take out loans in the in the in the name of the families that they were supporting then going back and then giving the papers to the family and okay like we got you a mortgage because they thought that we were you <laughs> so what you then need to do is to pay the mortgage faithfully establish a real Sort of precedence in which you are clearly good for this. Then, after about five, six years, go in and own up. <laughs> now, one of two things will happen, they said. Either, 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 like you'll get arrested, in which case, then actually, like you'll probably need to dob us in and we'll get arrested and all of us actually will be done for fraud. Or alternatively, what you say to them is, well, like, the only reason our friends had to do this is because, like, you were racist in the first place. <laughs> but, however, however, if if you look at what we have done, we have shown us, est- we have established the fact that we have always been on time with our repayments, and you've never had to chase us, and you've never had an issue with us. So, so your alternative is is to acknowledge that you were wrong in the first place, and maybe we were wrong in fooling you. But now that we are here, actually, actually, you're getting your repayments. <laughs> this family funny. did this for, I mean, it's amazing. This family did this for about a dozen people in Bradford. All black Caribbean people at risk to themselves. So therefore, when I say, okay, I grew up in an area where white people were habitually racist, there were always people who were different because they just had a different mindset. And what they did was going to go into the bank and use their white privilege to say, well, actually, we know that we'll get a mortgage because actually we'll turn up. But actually, if we turn up with your paperwork. This shows how racist and skewed this process is because what they're not looking at is your obviously there's a 60s and 70s of full employment they're not looking at your economic circumstances they're simply looking at you and judging you on the basis of your race which is clearly wrong that is an enormous risk that we're taking now you know i mean i'm not expecting every white person (laughs) to risk jail time like that you know i mean because quite frankly i probably wouldn't do that but i do that to say that you know something there are some remarkably co- courageous English people yeah. who have stood up for justice, who have stood up for fair play, who have given safe haven and homes to people who are refugees and asylum seekers who have made God's contribution. What we need to do is to recover those stories and to deconstruct all the other ones that we often get told in history books that actually bring embarrassment and shame upon us.
0: Anthony Reddy, thanks so much for coming on the Cory Podcast.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Our thanks to our guest this week, Professor Anthony Reddy. Don't forget to listen right to the very end for when Anthony answers one of our very short story questions. Thanks for tuning in to the Cory Miller Podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma and I'll be back with another episode next week. The Cory Miller Podcast comes to you with generous support from our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Community Relations Council in Northern Ireland, the Fund for Reconciliation from the Irish Government, and the support of the Friends of Corimila, who give monthly or annually. If you enjoy this podcast and have time to leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would be delighted. And if you ever want to get in touch with us, you can email welcome at corimila.org. The Corry Podcast is a Fonfon production. The researcher and producer is Emily Rowling. The podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. So, Anthony Reddy, could you tell us about a time when um, one of your national identities felt important to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first time I saw the West Indies cricket team play England, this was 1976, it was when the white uh, English captain was South African called Tony Gregg with his very, very strong South African accent and he was going to make the West Indies grovel. (laughs) And I think it's the first time I saw my dad really, because I mean, he's, he's a very emotionally constrained person, but he was just, he and my uncles all congregating around the house and we are watching our small black and white tv and the sheer sense of unbridled joy watching the West is demolish england um three nil and Viv richards became one of my enduring and still to this day remains one of my all-time heroes <laughs> um
0: what three people from your cultures present or past would you want to be in a lockdown bubble with anthony
1: okay i'd probably say marcus garvey um who was a black civil rights leader i Actually, before civil rights was invented, so he was of Jamaican birth, but was very much involved in a Black Power movement in the in the years actually uh, just following World War One. So he would be certainly one. I think probably Martin Luther King, um, undoubtedly for all the reasons that yeah. I guess our listeners don't need um, any further elaboration on that. And then I think probably third would be a contemporary Jamaican poet black woman poet called jean binter i've seen her several times her poetry is amazing she's a, a, a dub poet and a and a black feminist woman and she, and she just reminds me so much of this of the spirit of black caribbean women who have had a huge impact upon my own identity and formation